T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's not every day that you get to witness a genuine scientific breakthrough, but earlier this past week, that's exactly what the scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory had to share with the world with their announcement that they had ignited a fusion reaction that produced more energy than it took to create. This milestone, decades in the making, brings us one step closer to harnessing a potentially limitless source of clean energy. So today on the program, We'll hear from one of the scientists who helped to get us here about how they managed to pull it off. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Menconi. So uh, just to back up for a second, uh, here's what scientists announced on Tuesday. Uh, We learned that earlier this month, a team with the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore fired an array of lasers at a fuel pellet briefly creating a plasma that's hotter and denser than the center of the sun and setting off a reaction that fused together hydrogen atoms. Uh, Now, crucially, that reaction produced about three megajoules of energy. But those lasers only took about two megajoules to power. So with more energy coming out than going in, you've got yourself a power plant. Or at least a very early proof of concept for one. You know, sustaining that reaction, refining it, making it commercially viable. Those are challenges that could still take years or even decades to work out. And only then could we hook something up to the grid. So we're not getting fusion power tomorrow. But just think about the challenges that we've already overcome. You know, we're talking about a reaction that typically occurs in the sun, uh, recreating those conditions here on Earth, uh, in some ways making them more extreme, has taken some of the brightest minds and strongest lasers on Earth. And so we're going to dig a little bit more into exactly how it was done uh, to help walk us through it. We're very lucky to welcome on one of those bright minds right now, uh, Arthur Pack, uh, among the scientists involved in the ignition experiment. Arthur Pack, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So as I understand it, uh, you oversee the work of running the experiments to understand you know, what's happening inside that plasma. And it sounds like that work 
in and of itself requires some very fine-tuned science, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But uh, I want to start with the, the human side of all this. Tell me about the lead-up to the breakthrough. You know, is this something that you were expecting to happen? Well, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, you know, we're to be in this business, you have to be a, a bit of an optimist because, as you pointed out, uh, it has been decades in the making, and we've had to overcome so many, um, you know, very hard, um, you know, technical challenge, engineering challenges, and, and sort of understanding the physics to get it right. So, yeah, I was optimistic, especially based off the recent advances over the past uh, year, eighteen months. Um, that we were really onto something now where we were realizing more and more uh, fusion uh, reactions, uh, making the, the experiments better and better and really understanding uh, all these degradation mechanisms. So I was, I was pretty optimistic uh, leading up to this experiment. Yeah, there had been lots of incremental improvements uh, that uh, had been reported over the past year or so. So uh, going into this experiment, you're feeling good, you're feeling optimistic. How do you eventually find out about the result? Yeah, so, you know, we we run NIF 24-7, uh, so the... Again, the that's the uh, National Ignition Facility, yeah. Oh, yeah, so, right, so the experimental facility, the National Ignition Facility, runs uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and, um, you know, many things have to come together uh, eventually to to execute the experiment, and... Uh, because it's so complex, there's there's always um, uh, you know issues or delays that sometimes need to be worked out, and so it was getting later and later in the day, and uh, you know it was eventually it was it was meant to go off at you know 8 p.m. then it's 10 and then then it's you know one what happened, and so I said you know I got to get up in the morning uh, with the kids and get them to school, and so uh, you know I went to bed, um, but then. I came, I woke up at like three in the morning and I said, oh, it's happened. So I woke up, I logged on, I, I checked the uh, the archive where the data comes out. And yeah, I saw I saw the preliminary numbers and um, I had worked out beforehand, you know, what type of numbers we would need to achieve in terms of the number of fusion reactions to, to get gain greater than one. And, and the initial data looked, you know, very close to that, uh, you know. And so I was just super excited um, and I, I couldn't go back to sleep after that. I can imagine. And and so that is what a experimental breakthrough looks like these days, just numbers on a spreadsheet that got high enough. <laughs> yeah. So we we have, you know, over, you know, on these experiments, we field over 50 specialized diagnostics to measure, you know, a wide array of parameters. But oftentimes um, we have to uh, take that data, do analysis, check it, um, but we do have some uh, diagnostics that report right away. And so, you know, the first things we get to look at are things like uh, the number of, of uh, fusion reactions as measured by some of our detectors. Now, of course, we have to go and vet those and we have, you know, multiple independent variables. So, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, those numbers will change a little bit, but they're usually pretty accurate. So that is some of the first information we get. And then, we take all these diagnostics to really put together a consistent picture of what exactly happened. Uh, and um, yeah, so it's very exciting. 
Yeah, very exciting. And uh, as perhaps folks out there are getting a sense of as well, you know, no part of this is easy. No part of this is simple. So we're going to uh, be kind of moving through this science at a, at a snail's pace, trying to make sure that everybody uh, stays up to speed on it. Also going to welcome on now our second guest for this half hour, because this was uh, such a big discovery. So we're going to be broadening out our perspective a little bit more to help uh, understand the real significance of it all. Uh, that guest is Umer Irfan. He's a correspondent for Vox who's written about fusion energy and covered Tuesday's announcement. Umer Irfan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So for any uh, of us who have not been tracking this for the past several decades, get us all up to speed. Uh, Why is fusion energy considered such a big deal? Well, it's one of the longest-running scientific endeavors that we've pursued consistently. The basic physics of it got started in earnest in the 1920s, so nearly a century ago. And then the engineering efforts to try to use this to harness them for energy started in around the 1950s in the post-Manhattan Project era of nuclear energy development. And so in that wake of that project, the U.S. and the world developed fission energy. This is what powers conventional nuclear power plants. But the promise of fusion was always there, this idea of using fuel that's derived from seawater and potentially producing gobs of energy without producing a whole lot of radioactive waste. And so that equation has always been very promising. It's just that we've had a hard time maintaining a consistent effort of development. Back in the uh, 1970s, the U.S. Department of Energy did an assessment of what it would take to actually get energy from fusion to actually turn this into an energy source. And they looked at a high investment strategy, a middle investment strategy, and then a low investment strategy. And then they had something called fusion never, which was basically how much we would invest to basically never come to any kind of result with fusion. And it turns out the United States has been investing below the fusion never scenario. Mm. So for scientists who've been working on this, you know, it's been really frustrating that they have all this potential and promise, but have never really been able to get the public level of support. And this has also been something sort of as a generational project. The first scientist who worked on fusion handed it down to their students who then handed it down to their students. So it's rare that you have this sort of scientific process that's been developing incrementally over multiple generations. And so this has been a really long time coming. And so while this announcement was something of an increment, you know, um, as Arthur said, that they've been building up towards this for some time, getting over this finish line of getting more energy out than in, of being net energy positive is still a huge advance. And it just kind of cements that the scientists are, in fact, on the right track. Yeah, and just uh, going to reintroduce everybody real quick. Once again, this is KCBS in depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we are talking about this past week's fusion breakthrough and why it's taken so long for scientists to pull off and what it means for the rest of us. I've been hearing from Arthur Pack, once again, a scientist with the National Ignition Facility and among those who worked on the ignition experiment. Also just heard a second ago from Umer Irfan, a correspondent at Vox. And uh, sticking with you, Umer, so... Um, Why is fusion in particular such a tantalizing potential source of energy? We already have the fission reaction. We already have nuclear reactors that are splitting apart big atoms. Why is fusing together small atoms a potentially better way to get our electricity? Just about every energy source that we have today has some pretty substantial trade-offs. You know, with fossil fuels, we've learned that, you know, they cause climate change. They're heating up the planet, even though that they're very abundant and cheap. With solar and wind, we've run into issues of intermittency that, that you have to compensate for them when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And with nuclear energy, while we can generate power 24 hours a day with it, conventional fission reactors have to use this very expensive, difficult-to-handle fuel, uranium and plutonium, this very highly processed fuel that's radioactive. 
radioactive. And then when you burn that fuel, it produces radioactive waste that remains hazardous for thousands of years. So uh, fusion gets around just about all of these things because the fuel it uses is derived from water. It's hydrogen, hydrogen isotopes. And then the byproduct is going to be things like helium, which is actually a gas that's useful. And with fusion, there's not that much radioactive waste that you have to worry about. There is some, but it's not super hazardous and can be dealt with in a fairly cost-effective way. The problem, though, with fusion is that the reaction is much more delicate than mm. what we see with fission. With fission, you know, it's basically, um, I've heard a scientist describe it to me as pouring water over hot rocks. Basically, mm. we have rocks in nature that naturally give off heat, and if you put them together, they make each other hotter, and then you can pour water on them to start boiling that to turn a turbine and then generate electricity. With fusion, you're pointing, you know, the tiniest bits of matter at each other and you want them to collide with such energy that rather than bouncing off of each other, they stick to each other. Mm. But just about every force in the universe is working against you. You know, the nuclei of atoms are positively charged. They have this inherent repulsion. So you have to basically get these uh, nuclei moving extremely fast in a very confined space such that the likelihood of these collisions goes up. And in order to generate energy, you have to be able to get more energy out of those collisions than you put in. And that equation has been really hard to balance in our favor for a very long time. Scientists have been able to produce fusion before. You know, we've seen fusion since the 1950s with nuclear weapons. And in laboratories, we have been able to see fusion at small scales, but it cost us more energy than we were able to get out. Now, this is the first time with these recent announcement results that we were able to actually get a positive return on our investment. Right. And uh, so a lot to talk about there. You touched on some of the challenges of fusion. I want to put a pin in that for a second and bring things back to uh, Arthur Pack again with the uh, National Ignition Facility and uh, talk about his perspective on the promise of fusion energy. I'm curious, you know, as somebody who obviously has been working on this himself professionally for some time involved in this research, what attracted you to working on fusion? Why why is this something that... um, you are uh, motivated to pouring your you know professional life into yeah so i got interested um in college uh, actually hearing about the national Ignition facility and its mission to to create these types of of environments and yeah i mean the societal impact of a of a fusion energy plant was was super highly appealing uh, to me you know if we can really do that I think that would be a tremendous benefit uh, to the world. And I think that's something that really motivates me uh, to go to work every day and and work very hard um, to sort of reach these um, very large goals that (laughs) may not be accomplished in your lifetime. So um, yeah, that's what motivates me. And then since coming to Livermore, you know, I've also really learned about, uh, you know, how important these, these types of environments can be to, um, you know, to our security and, uh, and, um, yeah, so I think they they just these types of, of experiments can inform um, so many you know positive aspects uh, for for our country and the world. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So still a lot more to be learned, but as uh, we hinted at a moment ago, also tremendous challenges. Um, uh, going back to uh, Umer Irfan with Vox, so. We tried to make it clear at the beginning of the program that this does not mean that we're getting fusion power tomorrow. Uh, unpack some more of those challenges uh, for us, if you could. What is still between us and making a fusion power electric plant? Well, a few things. One, uh, while this experiment did generate more energy than it 
uh, received at the specific target, it wasn't by much. So the main factor that scientists look at or, or the way they quantify this is something called gain. A gain of one is roughly a break even. You get as much out as you put in. This was a gain of about 1.5, which is good, which is an important proof of concept. But if you want to run a reactor, you have to understand that you have to compensate for a lot of other inefficiencies. Now, if you look at the National Ignition Facility writ large and all the energy that's used to power up the laser, not just the energy hitting the target, that's much greater greater. And in order to compensate for that, to break even with that, you would need a gain of roughly 100 or so. Uh, similarly with NIF, it's a facility that's designed as a research facility, not necessarily to generate or produce electricity. Mm. And so each uh, shot requires, as, as Arthur was talking about, you know, a lot of effort to set up and calibrate. But in order to run a power plant, you know, you need to be able to fire these shots at roughly maybe a dozen times per second. And so you need something that can handle a much higher throughput. So that's a very different engineering problem than what this facility was designed to solve. Uh, and then, you know, similarly, you need to build a workflow around producing this fuel. You know, this is a very highly processed fuel. Even though it's abundant, you need to be able to get this into this very tiny, very pure fuel pellet. Um, and then you need to basically develop an infrastructure on the power grid to support it because while it does generate electricity, it also has to take in a lot of electricity in order to get the reaction started. So we need a lot of infrastructure around a similar reactor in order to be able to uh, maximize the amount of potential that we have here. So there, there's a lot of other moving parts here that we have to account for. And uh, with the proof of concept, we know we're on the right track, but it's also going to be a major scientific and engineering problem going forward as well that we will still be working on for years. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose uh, we really haven't gotten into too much detail exactly how this uh, fusion reaction was set off. So maybe it's a good opportunity to get into that a little bit more. Uh, Arthur Pack, tell us a little bit about uh, what we should be envisioning when we think of the fusion reaction that you and your colleagues managed to achieve. So there's a, there's a, a target pellet and there's lasers. Uh, fill that picture out a bit more if you could. Yeah, sure. So... That's exactly right. So we, we use lasers um, and we shine them into first a cylindrical cavity that's made of, uh, of a metal. So in this case, gold and uranium. Those lasers then convert their energy into um, uh, radiation, x-rays. And in the middle of the cylinder, we place this uh, fusion capsule target. And the x-rays that we create, um, you can sort of think of it as uh, this, this capsule is sitting in an x-ray oven now, right? And so the x-rays come down and they start to uh, cook the capsule in the center, if you will. Hmm. And as that happens, uh, the surface of the capsule gets really hot and it, it blows off. It actually explodes away. Hmm. And uh, due to conservation of momentum, you know, something explodes outwards. So there's an equal and opposite force, which triggers an inwards implosion, right? So we take this capsule, which originally starts out uh, at around two millimeters in diameter. And due to this this explosion, it rockets inwards to down to something that's, um, you know, a tenth of a millimeter in diameter. So there's this huge convergence effect. And to visualize that, people often talk about, you know, imagine taking something the size of a basketball and trying to compress it symmetrically down to something that's about the size of a, of a pea, you know, that you would eat. Mm. And so um, all that happens in, you know, uh, just a few nanoseconds. So this is very fast. And uh, once you've compressed this thing down, I mean, when you compress something, it gets denser, it gets hotter. And those are the types of conditions that we need to start to achieve these fusion reactions. So, you know, again, we're talking about, um, you know, densities that are 
you know, um, you know, hundreds of times uh, the density of, say, uh, a, a piece of plastic that's on your table or something like that. And temperatures that are in excess of 100 million degrees. So again, hotter than the center of the sun. And once you reach those conditions, as Umar was talking about, you've, you've provided enough energy to start to fuse these hydrogen isotopes together. Um, they start to, well, once you fuse together, they form a helium atom and release a, a, a neutron. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the helium atom uh, deposits its energy within that, in the plasma again. So it's a sort of self-heating process. And you get this sort of chain reaction events where the fusions create energy, which further heats the plasma, which creates more reactions and so on and so forth until it blows itself apart. Uh, and all the while it's producing uh, just copious amounts of, of, of fusion energy. Yeah, no, it's an incredible process. And just talking about both the incredible amounts of energy and the incredibly small amounts of time, it's just, it's it's an entire, it's a study in extremes in so many different ways. Uh, but real quick, once again, uh, for anybody who might just be joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, we're speaking with one of the scientists who helped make this past week's fusion breakthrough possible. That's Arthur Pack, who we just heard from a second ago with the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Also speaking with Umer Irfan, a correspondent at Vox. Um, and uh, Arthur Pack, sticking with you just for uh, one second. So that does kind of touch on some of the challenges of your own work. You know, you, you are tasked with helping us to understand how the experiment is going, what we can actually learn from what's happening inside the plasma. And you only have fractions of, of fractions of fractions of a second that this process is happening. Tell us a little bit about how you managed to actually get any information out of that. Yeah, so that's a great question. So the the sort of duration over which uh, you know the majority of fusion reactions take place is is a fraction of a nanosecond, and um, that's about uh, a billion times faster than you can blink your eye. So it, it's really fast, and so. To understand what's going on, we need specialized uh, scientific uh, instruments that can really measure these things. And they've been, uh, you know, there's been a lot of work by scientists and engineers over decades to sort of create the required instruments to measure these these types of extreme events. Um, and so, you know, we want to measure uh, the state variables of the reacting plasma. So we would like to understand you know, the temperatures, the pressures, the densities. And so we use a variety of instruments to diagnose that. And from those measurements, we can really understand how the fusion reactions sort of came together, uh, what is preventing them uh, from, from uh, you know, getting hot, um, and then uh, what we can do next to improve upon uh, uh, the, the experiments. So we really rely on these, on these measurements to make progress in understanding. And when we think about the difference between this reaction that managed to achieve net energy out and the other reactions that you've had before and, and the differences of how you got from one to the other, what sorts of changes should we be thinking of? Are, are we talking about engineering changes? Are we talking about just changing the parameters? Maybe uh, this laser stronger, that laser weaker. What sorts of changes, what sorts of tweaks get yeah. you from there to here? 
Yeah. So, you know, for this experiment, we, you know, we really pulled out all the stops and we, we did a little bit of everything here. So mm. one of the key ingredients uh, was uh, increasing the uh, laser energy that uh, the National Ignition Facility provided. So we increased that by about 8% in this experiment. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but again, when we're talking about these uh, explosive chain reactions, you know, a little bit of a change on the input can lead to a very large change on the output. So that was very meaningful. We also, um, you know, we can make design changes to the to the implosion, and sort of what that means is by adjusting the shape of the laser pulse, uh, the timing of the laser pulse, if you will, we can improve upon the way in which we compress the, the fuel. So allowing it to reach, you know, higher temperatures and densities um, by adjusting the laser pulse. And then finally, uh, we're also trying to improve our target quality. So, you know, these targets, um, uh, they're very close to perfect, but every small imperfection can actually um, degrade or, or steal energy from these reactions. And so, uh, yeah, I think I was hearing that even an imperfection on the size of a of a, a bacteria could make a difference. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, uh, we 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 look at each capsule before we shoot it, and we're looking for these defects and um, trying to think of the right analogy. And I was talking to a colleague, and you know, if you imagine that the capsule is the you know the the Earth, you know, we care about like little tall, you know, small little islands in the middle of nowhere, basically trying to find these things is even a challenge. Right. Um, but the, you know, they all seem to matter. And so we really brought together, you know, um, you know, scientific advances and, and, and how we design the experiment together with engineering advances on both the targets and the laser to really make progress here. So it's really taking all this learning and putting it together basically to, to make this advance. All right. Well, we've uh, only got a few minutes left, and I want to give uh, closing thoughts to both of you. And I think, curious, just to stick on this theme of what this broader significance uh, of this breakthrough is and, and where it could all be going, um, Umer Irfan, again with Vox. So, you know, it is a breakthrough. It does bring us closer to uh, fusion power as a potential source uh, of energy. But uh, some are quick to point out that that actual practical application could still be so far away that it won't really address our immediate concerns when it comes to climate change, when it comes to bringing down our emissions in this decade, the next decade. So what can be said? Uh, and obviously, there's a lot of other organizations working to bring fusion about. There's even different models for how to produce fusion, uh, others using uh, mag magnetics uh, more than this. Um, so what is there to say about the the role that fusion energy could play in um, our carbon future? Well, this uh, result, I think, kind of validates not just the science here, but the uh, importance of persistence. I mentioned earlier that this was a generational science project. This is something that goes back decades. Yeah. It's built on all those foundations, and uh, those foundations now are now being laid as well, and this is what it will lay the groundwork for the future. You're right that you know we're not going to see uh, a fusion reactor on the power grid anytime soon, probably not before the end of the decade, probably even decades down the line. But in order to have that when we need it, we have to start doing that work 
work now. Take, for instance, you know, the solar panels and wind turbines that we've seen now, like the foundational research for this was done back in the 1970s. And we've had them working for a while, but only in the past few years have they become so cheap that they can actually outcompete conventional energy sources on cost alone. That just not just their environmental benefits, but just the economic benefits have made the argument for renewable energy. In order to get to that point, it required decades of consistent and persistent investment. We need to do something similar now in order to lay the groundwork for fusion into the future. With de As we decarbonize, we're going to be electrifying more of our economy. What that means is even if overall energy demand goes down, overall electricity demand is going to go up a lot. Imagine running your car, your appliances, your entire household. All of those things are going to be running on electrons, which means we need more power generation on the grid, and we need more sources that can do that without producing greenhouse gas emissions. While we have some of those answers now, we can always use more and better versions of them into the future. This is how we invest and make sure that not just for us, but maybe future generations will have those energy sources that can continue to fulfill their standard of living while also staying within our environmental constraints. Yeah, well, uh, a lot on the line, as you, you suggest right there. So uh, closing thoughts to you, Arthur Pack. Um, what does it feel like to be uh, a part of scientific history at this moment? Yeah, I'm just super grateful um, to be able to contribute to this, uh, you know, decades long research effort and to be able to work with, you know, so many amazing people um, who have really enabled this over the years. So it's, yeah, it's very grateful and humbling just, just to be a part of this. Um, yeah, and I'm super excited for what comes next. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think the, the rest of us are too, and uh, just uh, grateful for all the work that uh, you and your colleagues are doing, and uh, thankful to, for you in particular for uh, coming on and uh, explaining some of it to us. Uh, we have been speaking one last time to Arthur Pack, a scientist with the National Ignition Facility, once again among those who worked on the ignition experiment that we've been hearing about all this week. Arthur Pack, thanks so much. Thanks, you. And we also just heard from Umer Irfan, a correspondent at Vox. Umer, thanks to you as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. Talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 